alcoholic. Some of you know me, and some of you heard me, and some of you don't, and some of you haven't. Uh, I've been outside talking to a duck this morning. Uh, they think the duck answered me. That's the funny thing about it. That duck sitting out front, and I walked up and said, "How you doing, duck?" And he said, mm-hmm. "He sat there, and, you know, answered me." Uh, we don't get completely sane in a very short time. I want you to know that. It takes a long time for sanity to come back. What we're going to talk about this morning is a topic that's probably not too popular with people like you and I, and that is uh, a concept called surrender. We're going to deal this morning with surrender of self-will. We're going to try to understand what self-will is. We're going to try to understand how it uh, comes into being and the necessity of letting go of it in order to recover from alcoholism. I want to review with you, as we always do out here, first, the nature of the disease of alcoholism. We believe that alcohol is a threefold illness. The physical part of the illness is that we are, in simplistic terms, allergic to alcohol. Our bodies do not burn off alcohol like other people's bodies do, the so-called normal person. This part of our disease is incurable, and if we pursue without treatment drinking alcoholic um, uh, beverages, we will die or go completely insane. It is a part of us that is there and will always be there. There is no known cure for this physical allergy to alcohol. Every time we drink, it seems that the phenomenon of craving sets up in us, or we want more and more and more and more. I know all of you have had the experience. You take one drink, and you're off to the races. The second part of the disease is mental. And this is what we call an obsession. And the obsession drives the alcoholic to drink time and time again. And as I've said to you before and I'll say to you again, the obsession often is not an overpowering kind of thing. I like to call it the little monkey that jumps up on my shoulder and tells me time and again a lie. And that lie being this. This time it's going to be different. This time, if you just handle it right, you're going to be able to drink like everybody else. Now, I believed this lie. For years, I believed this lie. In spite of all that had happened to me, all the jails, hospitals, psycho wards, religious homes for alcoholics, treatment facilities of all kinds that I had been in, in spite of the fact uh, that I was never supposed to drive an automobile again because I drove drunken uh, too many times, in spite of the fact that I was uh, under sentence to go to the chain gang if I was caught drinking, the monkey would pop up to me and he would say, this time, it's going to be different. This time, if you just handle it right, you're going to be able to drink like everybody else. Alcoholics, I think, believe this lie. Part of our disease is that we have developed the ability somewhere along the line to lie effectively to ourselves. So there's a physical part of the illness which condemns us to die or go completely insane if we drink, and there's a mental part of the illness that keeps us doing it. Over and over and over. And what we're going to deal with specifically this morning is the spiritual part of the illness. And when I'm talking about spiritual, I don't know about other people. I'm not talking about ethereal, heavenly things. I'm talking about pragmatic, inside kinds of things. Spirit has to do with my relationship with you, my relationship with myself, and my relationship with whatever higher power that I believe in. It's just that simple. There's no theology involved, really. There's no particular conception of a higher power that you have to adopt, really. All of this is left up to you. All that we know from our experience, these are not theories, from our experience, is that there is a spiritual part of this disease. We call it the spiritual malady. In the book that you've been given out here entitled Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll find something like the following words. We have been physically and mentally ill, but we have been spiritually sick also. And then, something I would like you to remember this morning more than anything else, these words. It says, once the spiritual malady is overcome, then we straighten out mentally and physically. Once the spiritual malady is overcome, then we straighten out mentally and physically. We're talking about self-will this morning. 
And I'm going to say, for our purposes this morning, that self-will is the spiritual malady. Now, what is self-will? We're going to get into that soon. But I'll give you something simple that you can hang on to. And I try to talk to you simply not because you might not understand it, but because if I don't, I might not understand it. To me, the spiritual part of this disease is playing God. Seeking to run the world, run the show, run the people around me, control, manipulate, use, put people in place the way I want them, so that I'll feel comfortable. And so that there'll be less danger of my being hurt. It's just that simple to me. Think about your own life. Think back. And see if you didn't in many ways try to change the world to fit you instead of changing yourself to fit the world. Think about it honestly. If you think about it in your normal thinking pattern and you're an alcoholic, you're going to have a hard time thinking about it honestly. So once the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. What does that say? It says once that we quit playing God, we begin to straighten out mentally and physically. That means the obsession will disappear. And it does. And that means if the obsession disappears, the physical part, the incurable fatal part, will never come into play again. Because you'll never take a drink. You hear people say in AA a very silly thing. Just don't take the first drink. That's exactly what they mean. But there's a lot that goes in front of that. Something has to change. And if it doesn't change, you're bound to take that first drink. You're driven by an obsession to take that first drink. And the obsession's got to go. And we're going to talk about self this morning. Self theory. And there are as many theories of self as there are psychologists who invent these theories. I really believe that. And each of us has a theory of self. But I'm going to try to show you what the self is this morning in simple, understandable terms as I see it. This is my opinion. You don't have to adopt it. But I'm going to try to draw some pictures of it, actually. Okay? There is a story of all that is, all exists. Some people call it God. Some people call it Allah. Some people call it Adonai. Some people call it Elohim. Some people call it uh, Krishna. Some people call it Shiva. But to the man in this world, for some reason, everyone believes that there is a source of everything that is. And we don't seem to acquire this belief. We seem to be born with it. Every human being knows that there's got to be a source for you and me. And we can eat them somewhere. And there's got to be a source for this world around us. I don't think I can find much argument with that. Okay. So we're going to say up here is a source. Leaving out natural phenomena and spiritual phenomena and getting down to people. Have you ever taking a flashlight, I know you haven't, but if you did and you punch holes in a piece of paper and you shine that flashlight through that piece of paper and shine it up against that wall, you'll get many points of light, will you not? Okay? Each of those points of light is the same as the source, the flashlight. Each one is the same as the source. Not identical to it, but the same. Would you agree with that? Okay. I believe that this is what happens. Okay? Let's put this one out here. And I'm going to draw this one a little bigger than the other, so that I can write a few things in it. So what am I saying? I believe that each one of us is a manifestation or a pinpoint of light of the source. I'm saying right out loud that I believe that each of us has some of this source inside of us, that we're a part of that source. Religious people say we're the children of God. That's what I'm saying. We come from him. We have some of his nature within us. Okay. So when I'm talking about self, what I would call this is a higher self. Say this is one self, this is another self, and this is the one we're going to deal with this morning. This higher self right here. Now within this higher self are some very important things. First off, is a thing called power. And second, is a thing called intelligence. 
I am not talking about intellect. I am talking about intelligence. Knowing. Knowing, for instance, what is right and what is wrong. Knowing, for instance, what we should do and should not do. This seems to be a part of it. Some people call it conscience. I don't care what name you put on it. I would call it basic intelligence. There are certain things that I just know. Is it not true with you, Leon? There are certain things that we know and we seem to be born with. Okay. As I said, this is a simple picture and it's not meant to be comprehensive. But each of us has within us a part of the source and that is the seat of two things that we need to live. Power and intelligence. Okay. Something else happens. We are not just this. We are combined with something else. And this I'm going to call the lower self. And I'm going to have to abbreviate this or I'll never get it all in. Remember, this is intelligence. Okay. Within this lower self are three basic parts. Probably more, but I'm just going to name three. Within this lower self is the thing that we call intellect. Within this source, or this lower self, is a thing that we call feeling or emotion. And within this lower self is another thing called will. Okay. All of this self is one. I'm not saying it's two, but I'm saying it has two distinctive parts. Now, when these two parts are working together and functioning smoothly and in agreement with one another, and they're in basic agreement with these other cells out here, and they also have lower cells, we have a condition called what? Vanity. When everything's moving smooth, when we're in agreement with ourselves and not in a fight inside, and not fighting with anybody else, particularly, especially all the time, we have a condition called sanity. Remember that each of these is a lower self also. Now I want to point out something to you here that I think is important, and that is there is never any conflict between our higher selves. I want you to think about that. The key word to remember about our higher selves is the word we, W-E. Everything in the universe is related, it functions smoothly, and everything is equal. Everything and everyone is equal. When we're talking about the lower self, this is where all the disagreements all the comparison, all the fight, all the war, and everything else come from because the lower self, another name for it, is ego. And the chief word for ego is not we, it's I. There's a distinctive difference. Okay? That's where all the fighting and things come from, I believe. Okay, we're going to talk about the self, as I said, and here's a picture of it as I understand it. And all of this, remember, is inside, so we'll call it the inner self. Okay, there are around us, and there are some in here who are getting there, there's something that we call a healthy self. Let's take a look at a healthy self. A healthy self works together. Okay? Within yourself, you work together. You're not fighting. One part of you is not saying yes, and the other part is saying no, and you don't know what to do. Everything's moving, functioning. A healthy self accepts its characteristics and abilities. Let me put that another way. A healthy person looks at himself and sees that he is enough. Okay? Not too much, not too little, but he can look at himself and he can say, I'm enough. Or as one modern psychologist has put it, I'm okay. I'm okay. In his terms, when you get the situation, I'm okay, you're okay, you're working in that condition called sanity. Everything's smooth. Everything feels good. So a healthy self accepts itself, its own characteristics, limitations, and abilities. It relates well to the other self and to the environment around it. A healthy person considers himself equal to others and is considerate of their needs. Again, the word we. He thinks about other people. A healthy person holds reasonable values. Reasonable values. He sets attainable goals, and he has reasonable needs. 
He has a positive attitude towards himself, towards other people, and toward life in general. He feels like he's a part of life. He's really in this thing. He's living. He has normal mood changes. Normal mood changes. Normal cycles in his life, you know? Kind of a smooth curve. Not like some of us. We're either always too happy or too sad. And we jump from one to the other. Like that. All the time. He uses his will properly. That is, he does not impose it on other people. He feels connected to the power. He can't describe it. He can't write it out. But he feels like he's connected to that power. He considers the power to be loving and helpful. He is inner-directed. The intelligence and the power deep within him are dealing positively with these other parts of him, and his life is flowing. He is inner-directed. Okay, I would call such a healthy self sane. Sane. Now, for a minute, let's take a look at the will. This is what we're really going to get at today. This part right here. What is it? The will is simply this. It is the capacity that I have been given to choose what I'm going to do and the capacity to do it. <coughs> So the will is the ability to choose what I'm going to do and do it. Okay. With a healthy person, he can do just that. He can make a decision and he can follow up on that decision because his self is working good and he's connected to the power. What happens when the self becomes unhealthy? Let's take a look. Anytime that this part of the self tries to take the role of this part of the self, you have a bad condition. That's what we call playing God. Remember, our higher self is our God self, our lower self is our ego self, and when the ego self takes over the job of the higher self, we got problems. That's what playing God is. Let's look at an unhealthy self. An unhealthy self is ego-centric. He's almost totally concerned with his own needs, his own wants, and his own desires. Almost totally. He sees himself or she sees herself as not enough or too much. In other words, the unhealthy self always feels inferior or superior, too adequate or completely inadequate. He's either floating on a cloud or he's in the depths of hell. No in-between. The unhealthy self does not relate well to the other selves or to the environment. It considers the world and its people a threat. It considers itself inferior or superior to others and now gives little thought to their needs. There's the word I. I'm looking at the number one. It holds extreme values, has a negative attitude towards self, others, and life, feels separated, alone, and not a part of life. The unhealthy person imposes his will on others and seeks to control them. The unhealthy self feels unconnected to the power and considers the power to be judgmental, punishing, or uninterested. I don't know about you, but I know about me. My belief about the power was this. If I do wrong, he's going to zap me. And you know, I walked around a long time in my life expecting that bolt of lightning to come zap me most any time. I somehow felt that I deserved to be punished, that I needed to be punished, and that he was going to do it. And you know, if you expect something long enough from other people, for instance, it'll happen. If you had a certain viewpoint of God or the higher power, then in your own mind, that's the way he is. Sitting up there with the rule book. Tom broke this one, Tom broke that one, Tom broke this one, Tom broke that one. I went through the whole book, see? I mean, he would have had to have a computer to keep up with me. But I don't think that's his job, but that's the way I felt. The unhealthy self is insane. What is happening with the unhealthy self is this. Through his taking the role of the higher self, through control, he builds a wall. He cuts himself off from the power, from the intelligence, 
from other people and from the source. Can you see that? When this wall goes up through the practice of self-will, we become cut off and separated. Let's look back at the will now. I said the will was the ability to choose and do what you've chosen to do. All of you raise your right hand. Go ahead. Raise your right hand. Okay. That is an act of the will. You decided to raise your right hand and you did. That's a simple example of what the will is. Now what happens to the will of people like you and I? Any part of the self that is misused or abused is going to become non-functional. It won't work anymore. It won't work. What would happen if your right arm was broken and I said raise your right hand? <coughs> Couldn't do it, could you? Or what if I said raise your right hand and you raised your left? Something was wrong, isn't it, if that happened? Either you don't know your right from your left, which is okay, or you lack something. Something is missing. Now, think about it in these terms. If I can abuse and misuse my arm and make it non-functional, can I not also abuse and misuse my will and make it non-functional? Think about it. How many times did you decide never to drink again? And you meant it. And the next thing you know, you're walking into a bar. The monkey's sitting up on your shoulder. Two beers ain't going to hurt you. This time it's going to be different. You gave a command, you know, I will not drink. And you did. Or, how many times did you say, I'm going to quit with one or two, or three? Usually with an alcoholic, it's two. That's a dead giveaway. You go to the courtroom and sit down there and watch the drunk parade up in front of the judge, you know. And the way to tell a drunk from an alcoholic when the judge asks him, how much did you drink? The alcoholic, 98% of the time, I believe this, is going to say, I had two drinks, or a couple of beers. It's always a couple, you know. But you decided to stop at number two, and you meant it. You meant it. And when the drink came around, you reached out and took number three, and number four, and number five, and number six. What I'm saying is this. The will can be made useless. If it is abused or misused, it can be made useless. And I believe this is what happens with us alcoholics. We read, and we're told, and it's true. Somewhere along the line in the life of every alcoholic, he loses the power to choose whether he'll drink or not. He loses the power to choose. The will is gone. Okay, when you put an unhealthy self and an unhealthy will together, what have you got? You've got intellect without intelligence, and you've got will without power. Let me say that again. You've got intellect without intelligence and will without power. Example, if you give a dog or a cat something to eat that makes them sick, try to give it to them again. That dog will walk up to that dish of food and he'll look at it and he'll recognize that made me sick. And he'll turn and he'll walk away. If it's a cat, the cat will walk up there and look at it and recognize it made him sick and give you a mad look before he walked away. That's the way cats are. Okay? But they will not eat that thing again, will they? They will not. They have the intelligence to recognize what's good for them and say yes to it and what's bad for them and say no to it. They have basic intelligence and they have basic will. Think about yourself. Think about yourself. Did we not keep taking into our body time after time after time after time the substance that was causing all our trouble, that was making us so sick, There's a breakdown of intelligence. There's a breakdown of will. We get to the point where we cannot say no, and I fully believe that. We get shut off from the higher self. And another thing happens here, too. Feelings. Each one of us has an ideal image of what we want to be. And you can see from this, I am not an artist. Okay? That's an ideal image of what I want to be. Okay? 
Now, when I have feelings that are dirty or negative or wrong, and they don't fit that image, I shove them down into myself. If I'm really mad at somebody, for instance, and he says, Tom, are you mad at me? And I say, no. I shove that feeling down inside of myself. Even when I act out my anger toward somebody else in the past, it never was enough. I stayed mad. I shoved it down inside of me. And it ate at me and ate at me and ate at me. I had colitis for so long I thought I had a chronic case of it. You know, my intestines burned. And it wasn't because of what I was eating, it's because of what I was feeling. Think about it. Okay. Again, we lie and we shove our feelings down. Because what we feel doesn't fit that image. And we walk around pretending to be that we're that image. And we know inside we ain't that image. And there's a conflict. We shove these feelings down inside by several means, okay? We rationalize our feelings. Rationalization is a lie and a defense of a lie. Oh, if it weren't for so-and-so, everything would be all right. We project our feelings. We blame other people. Conditions, circumstances, events for our problems. And some of us even blame booze for our problems, don't we? That's the ultimate cop-out for the alcoholic. If it weren't for alcohol, if I hadn't been drunk, we shove these things down inside of us we repress them or we sit around and here's a good way that alcoholics do it some of you be doing it today you be sitting around upstairs talking about the good old drinking days remembering the good old times that you had with Bush how about the bad old times how about the dry heaves and the shakes and the DTs and the convulsions and the jails and the hospitals what happens to that we shut it off we remember what we want to remember. When an alcoholic can get to the point where he can remember some of those bad things, he's going to start getting well. And we can actually sit around after shoving all these things down inside of us. We can sit with a counselor and tell him and believe it. I don't have a drinking problem. We really can't. We completely shut ourselves off from our own feelings. I say completely, not too completely. Every night before I go to bed, I have 10, 15, 20 seconds of total clarity. Do you? 10, 15 seconds when I know how I really feel. I know how I really feel. Or, these feelings are going to come out. I have nightmares. Or I can't sleep. And this is the way these feelings kill us. These feelings drive us. They're not conscious, but they drive us. And what do they drive the alcoholic or the drug-addicted person to? Booze. Pills. <laughs> Think about it. The feelings, the feelings that we're not even aware of are the things that... Yeah, that's the reason we take a fourth step. An inventory. We identify them. We bring them up into consciousness. We say, yes, this is me. This is the way I honestly felt. But I'm getting a little ahead of it there. Okay. Self-will. The depth of insanity, as far as I am concerned, is that I separate myself through my own actions from the source of all power. I get separated through my own actions from that which I must not be separated from. You see, I believe that if you knock out that source up there, and I really believe this, this whole world and everything in it would go. What happens to the life of the alcoholic when he cuts out that source, Walter? What happens? Doesn't his life go in all directions? Doesn't it explode? And he's sitting in the middle of it. I don't want to do that, but I'm doing it. I do want to do this, and I can't. I want to quit, and I can't. I want to drink, and I can't. You ever had to feel it? You get disconnected from that source. That's the deepest form of insanity. The deepest. Because you're denying what you know to be true. <laughs> what happens when self-will takes over? In my life or in your life? 
there is a, an ever-increasing downward spiral, and it gets faster, and it gets faster, and it gets faster. I haven't got much room to draw it here. That's like this. And it always ends up at a certain point. And for convenience, we're going to call that point bottom. When self-will takes over, there's only one ultimate end, alcoholic or not. Bottom. That point in time where all the stops are out, everything's falling to pieces. You make all the decisions you want to and you can't carry them out. Everything's shot and you know it. The crisis of crises is bottom. Face to face with reality. What happens on this downward spiral? Let's look at it. What happens to our thoughts on this downward spiral? Up at the top of the spiral there, when we start out, we think mostly of ourselves, the people close to us, or our property. Go down that spiral a little bit, we think mainly of ourselves. Neglect the needs of those close to us. We go a little further down the spiral, we think only of ourselves. Now, we want more. We want what other people have, and we'll steal to get it. We're envious, greedy. We lie to ourselves and our thoughts. And when we hit bottom... We're totally confused, we have lapses of memory, we're paranoid, we're anxious, we're tense, we're unable to make a decision, we're unable to lie anymore, and we're lonelier than we've ever been in our lives. What happens with the attitudes of people who are running on self-will? Going down that spiral, start at the top. At the top of that spiral, we're positive in our attitudes when things are going our way. When they're not, we feel life is hard, but we can master it. Feel superior to other people. Wheel and deal, con, use, manipulate, scheme, lie, but we can handle it. Move down that light, that spiral a little bit. We're seldom positive anymore. Life and the world become forbidding places. We start blaming others for our failures. We're not really satisfied with our successes. Time after time in my own life, when I saw something I wanted, I went and I got it, and when I got it, I didn't want it anymore. You ever have that feeling? Maybe it was a job. Maybe it was a woman. Maybe it was a friend. And I went after it with all the energy that was in me, and when I got it, I didn't want it. Never satisfied, not even with my success. Move down that spiral some more. Life is negative and threatening. Failures of increased self-doubt. He begins to dislike himself and others more intensely. He's sure he's inferior now. As a friend of mine said, the turtles of life pass you by like they're riding motorcycles. And you stand there and look and all you can say is, why? 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 And he gets to the bottom. What's his attitude? complete hopelessness. Everything is black. People are no good. He's no good. And he says a beautiful alcoholic phrase over and over. He says it. What's the use anyhow? Can you say that? What the hell is the use? <laughs> Just look at his actions on that spiral when he's going down. His actions at first are related to getting what he thinks he needs. He seeks by any means to gain control, to gain approval, but he's not antisocial. He moves down the spiral a little bit. Now his actions are related to getting what he wants. He redoubles his efforts at control. He fights to have his way. He moves down a little more. He frantically strives for prestige and approval, lying, conning, scheming, pretending, steps on anybody in his way. He's antisocial, and he fights against his life. And he gets bottom. His actions at bottom are these. He's reduced to inaction most of the time. Only acts for himself and only when absolutely necessary. Let me illustrate that. How many of you have laid up drunk and when the booze got down about that far from the bottom of the bottle, or God help us all, when it was gone? The only action we performed was to get out of bed, go get some more booze, Come back to bed, and only because it was absolutely necessary. <coughs> we don't act anymore. 
except when you have to. What happens with our feelings as we go down the spiral? Most of us at the beginning, even at the top of that spiral, are uneasy, nervous, easily angered people. We're sensitive. We have feelings for a few people, but not many. We move down that spiral. We become anxious. We become plagued by nagging fears, guilt, and remorse. We get angry. We get angry and we don't know why. And we hold it. We move further down the spiral. We become completely ill at ease, frightened, jealous, envious, eaten up by anger. And then we become afraid to have feelings for anybody. And you'll hear some of us say, I don't have the capacity to love anybody. And what are we really saying? Loving somebody scares me to death. Feelings on the bottom. How about terror? How about bewilderment? How about despair? And how about what I consider the king of them all? Self-hate. My ideal image has been up here. I know what it is not once have I achieved my ideal image. Every time I fail, I dislike myself some more. I fail again, I dislike myself more. If you dislike yourself long enough, you're going to come to a point where you look at yourself and you're going to hate yourself. When you're taking that inventory, please look at self-hate. It's there. Don't deny it. Don't deny it. What happens on that spiral with our drinking or our drug addiction? I'm going to use drinking as the example. At first, we drink because we like the effect produced by alcohol. We wanted to drink. Didn't it? Felt good. Then we moved down that spiral a little bit and we began to do something funny. We began to handle our problems by drinking them out of existence. We began to handle those people that were making us so mad by getting drunk at them. We got drunk at people. I'll show you. I'll get drunk at you. Move down. Then we started drinking to ease the pain of living. Booze had become a medicine. We couldn't exist without it. We hit the bottom. We drink because we have to now. We drink because we have to. Because of the obsession, the physical addiction, and the spiritual malady. Booze has become a necessity we cannot do without. There's no way we can do without. We have got to have an answer to replace the booze. Because booze has become our answer. Now, what we're trying to give you here at the center is an answer. An answer. So that booze will no longer have to be your answer. An answer that is permanent, lasting, real. An answer that doesn't give you dry heat, DT's, convulsions. An answer that doesn't make you hate yourself. An answer which will allow your will to function again. An answer which will allow you to look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm enough. We hit bottom, don't we? And bottom is not a geographical location, and bottom has nothing to do with the amount that we drink, or how often we drink, or whether we're men or women, or whether we're young or old, or educated or uneducated, or have money or don't have money. Bottom is a state of being that comes to each one. And at that point, where he is completely separated from life, love, and God. And it comes just before total insanity or death. Let me say that again. Bottom comes just before total insanity or death. Bottom, then, is an opportunity to change. Several things happen when we hit bottom. We're hurting. The will completely collapses. We can no longer choose whether to drink or not. We realize two things. We can't drink and we can't quit. The will won't work. There's a complete deflation of that ego, the big eye. Pride gets kind of snuffed out when we're hurting, doesn't it? It did for me every time I drank. 
I had no pride when I was hurting. I'd go to you and I'd get your help. I'd beg for it. Until I got well. And then pride would come back. And to hell with you, baby. <coughs> the monkey don't pop up there when you're on bottom. You know that? The monkey don't pop up there and say it's going to be all right because you look all around you and you know it ain't all right. And he goes deflated. He knows he can't drink like other people. We know we're not different. We know that we're whipped. Another thing happens. When we hurt, we begin to want to not hurt. What does that mean? We begin to want to change. If for nothing else but to take away the hurt. We want to live. And at that point in time, we're willing to do anything to change. On bottom. Another thing happens. We realize deep down inside ourselves the conditions of getting well. We know it. We look at our lives and we see that we cannot solve the problem ourselves because we don't have the power. We look at our lives and we know that help from all external human sources has failed. We've tried them. We have tried them. How many of us haven't been to good psychiatry, good doctors, good people, good counselors, good ministers, begging them to help us? And it wasn't their fault that the help wasn't there. So we know these sources won't work. And here's where the point comes, where we know that we've got to have a power greater than ourselves and external human sources, or we're dead. Is that coming across to you? We know it. How do we know that? We know it because it's part of us. We've got the intelligence that was given to us by the source. Tell you a story about my little boy. He's 11 years old now. When he was younger, I may have told you this before, two or three years old, you've heard of armchair philosophers. Well, he was a potty chair philosopher. And he sat on his potty chair. He wanted somebody to sit there and talk to him and listen to it. And I got the job one night. And I'm sitting there, and out of this boy's mouth came these words. These are his words. Hey, Dad, Jesus turns the power on. I'm not here to preach Jesus. That ain't my job. These were his words. But you consider that statement from a two or three-year-old kid. It amazed me. And I said, how do you know that? Did your mama tell you? And he said, no, sir. And I said, well, did you learn it in Sunday school? Well, I know, sir. And I said, well, how do you know such a thing? He said, it's simple. I just know. That's why. At bottom, there's a little hole made in this wall. And that power and that intelligence begin to flow in like air into a vacuum. We know because we've always known it's a part of us. Which one of you, when he was really hurting, for instance, did not say the equivalent of three words, God help me? you think about it? Or did you just do it? Or did you just hear yourself doing it? And we know these things. We know. He knows at this point that he's whipped, and when you're whipped, there's nothing to do but admit it and give up the fight. Surrender. Surrender comes about through the deep realization of powerlessness and hopelessness, the desire to change, and the willingness to believe. We alcoholics give up because there's nothing else to do. The alcoholic stands at the turning point. He must have help. And from somewhere deep within, he knows that this power has got to come from something higher than himself. And so, he makes a decision to turn his will and his life, the one which doesn't work, 
and the other one, which is a mess, over to the care of God as he understands it. He makes the decision to do that. <coughs> Alcoholics sometimes complain when we get to the third step. Why, what is going to happen to my free will? Show me an alcoholic who's got any free will. In light of what I've said today, if it's true of you, do you have any? Can you choose what you want to do and do it? Choose what you don't want to do and not do it? That's free will. What the third step is trying to give you is your will back. So you can use it. And you ain't giving nothing away. You're putting it in the care of. Now, if my arm is broken, like I said a while ago, I go to a doctor. And I say, doctor, my arm's broken. Won't work. All the parts are there. The capacity to heal is there. But my arm won't work. Well, you said it. And he said it. And lo and behold, in a few weeks, my arm's working. The doctor knows how to fix it. If something's wrong with my car, I take it to a mechanic. And I say, Mr. Mechanic, all the parts are in my car, but they're just not working right. They're just not working right. And my car won't run. Now, Mr. Mechanic, you know about cars. Would you fix it so it'll run? And he gets in there and fills around, charges you a fortune. But if he's a good mechanic, your car will run. Now, if my will is broken, I take it to the one who fixes broken wills. And I say to him, higher power, the will's broken. All the parts are there, but they don't fit. Would you fix it? And he does. He does. Take it to the woman who can fix it. Get it fixed. And it'll work. There's an example of this. And it's in the Bible. And it's the story of the prodigal son. I want you to think about the first three steps of the program when we're talking about this. You heard it a thousand times, you hear it a thousand more because it's a good story. It's about this boy who asked his daddy to give him all his inheritance. Okay? And he says he got it and he went off into a far country. And he wasted his substance in righteous living. He went off into a far country. The lower self pulled away from the higher self. The child pulled away from the father and wasted his substance in righteous living. After this happened, the righteous living, or the self-will run riot, as we say in the program, brought him to a point where he was in a pig pen with the pigs. Now, this was a Jewish boy. And the bottom for any Jewish kid is being in a pig pen. And he says, is it even going to eat the food that the pigs are eating? He hit bottom. But he gave up. He admitted he was powerless. And then it says this. He came to himself. He came to himself. Second step, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore it to sanity. And he said to himself when he came to himself, I think I'll get up from here and go on home. I'm not fit. I don't like me. I'm not fit to be my father's son, but I can be one of his servants, and they're better off than I am. He became willing. He went home. And such is the nature of the higher power that when he was far off, his father saw him, ran out, hugged his neck, kissed him, and said, Welcome home. You're alive again. And I prepared a great feast for you. And that feast is life. And I want you to have it in great abundance. He came back. He reconnected. And he was able to live comfortably within himself. Think about it. In the book that you have, page 62, it says, here is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. 
what the spiritual malady has overcome, then we straighten out mentally and physically. What are the results of this? Quickly. Rebirth. A new beginning. Regeneration. The will works again. And freedom. Freedom from self-will. Freedom from the obsession. Freedom from the need to control other people. Freedom. It's the greatest thing any man can have. Now, we're not telling you that this might happen. We're telling you that if you fulfill the conditions of the program in which you're involved, it will happen. Read, if you will, when you leave here today in that book, page 83 and 84. It says, if we've been thorough about this phase of our development, we're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We're going to comprehend serenity and we will know peace and things like that. These are not iffy. These are promises. If you fulfill the conditions of the program you're in right now, these promises will come true in your life. <coughs> if we surrender, submit. I will. To our power of our own choosing. We will no longer be losers in life. We'll be winners. We don't have to change the world. Don't have to change the people. All we got to change is ourselves. Let me close with this. I told you this before. I want to stick with you. There's a story of a man who came home every day, and when he got home, he played with his son every day. It was a ritual. And he came home this one day, and the little boy met him at the gate and said, Dad, let's play. And he had a briefcase full of work, and he couldn't play that day. So he had to find some way to put his son off for a while. And when they walked in the house, he saw a map of the world laying on a table by the door. And he picked it up and he tore it into a hundred or so pieces and gave it to the little boy and said, go put this back together and when you do, we'll play. And boy, he thought he'd done a bright thing. Went in, sat down at his desk, opened his briefcase, started his work, still congratulating himself. Three or five minutes later, he set a tap on his shoulder. He turned around and there stood the little boy. Had the whole map put together. Said, okay, let's play. And I said, son, said, how in the world did you get that thing together so fast? He said, well, Dad, there's something you didn't know. He said, on the other side of this map is a picture of a man. And all I had to do was put the man back together, and the whole world fell into place. You hear me? That's all we got to do. That's all we got to do. And you can look at yourself and say, I'm okay. Like another little kid and his dad came home and said, you been good today, boy? He said, no. He said, you been bad? He said, no. Just comfortable. <laughs>